The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So, uh, welcome to the Buddhist Society, to the Buddha Loka Buddhist Centre this uh, Monday night, Monday night, for the meditation evening. And usually this uh, takes the format of a little bit of an introduction and then the meditation. And very seldomly, uh, questions or comments <laughs> or complaints. That's good. The complaint's good, isn't it? But that's good. So uh, um, this evening, uh, we have another opportunity to meditate together. So this is wonderful. And I'll just introduce myself for those that are um, listening to this on the internet. And my name is Ajahn Nisarano. I'm an Australian monk who ordained in Perth with Ajahn Brahm 23 years ago as a novice monk and then 22 years ago as a full monk. And for the last 13 and a half years, been living in Sri Lanka, mainly in the forests and, uh, and for eight years in a cave, which was very nice. And this is what, uh, you know, living in a Buddhist country can be, uh, can help, you know, can make it possible. It's much much more difficult in Australia to live like that. It takes a lot of technical support. You need a lot of support for it. So this evening, uh, as usual, I, as I mentioned, I'll give an introduction and uh, um, to the, the evening. And this evening I was thinking, because it's been on my uh, mind lately, actually, you know, why do we meditate and why do we develop the Buddhist path, the Noble Eightfold Path? And I think that's something that's worth asking. You know, what is our motivation for for meditating? What's the purpose of it, you know? And what is the point? And uh, recently, I think this is part of the reason that I see it, you know, that uh, this thought has come to my mind is because um, I visited a psychiatric hospital about two weeks ago. And these people, their bodies were fine. They looked okay anyway. <laughs> Wasn't was obviously not uh, very much problem physically, um, but mentally, you know, the, the the world that they were inhabiting. Not that I spoke to them in any great detail. It was obviously one that was giving them a lot of suffering, a lot of problems, and they were in that hospital because of that. It was actually for um, people who had committed crimes because of their mental state. So. It was sort of yeah. It was very interesting to see. So it makes one realize that uh, what what is the most important thing in our lives is the mind. Is the mind is you know, and the body is a, of course it's a, a vehicle for the mind. We cannot human beings cannot exist just as a mind. We need a body to um, to experience the world, to develop, and to develop the noble eightfold path. And to in order to meditate, and it makes very it makes it very obvious that uh, how we experience the world is very much uh, um, dependent upon the state of our minds, the state of our emotions, and and that hospital it was very obvious, you know, that that you know the the mind states these people had experienced at the time of committing a crime, obviously not good, but also even afterwards uh, difficult. And what uh, really determines our experience, um, negative experience at least, is the amount of 
and the amount, the amount of uh, difficulties we have in our lives, the problems we have in our lives, is usually determined by three things that we talk about often in Buddhism, greed, hatred, <laughs> and delusion. And, you know, people think, I'm not greedy. I'm, you, know, I, I, you know, of course there are some things that I want, but, of course, when the Buddha uses that word greed, it's any shade of desire, you know. And, of course, most of our desires have always got good justification why we need this, why we need that, and and so on. But also hatred is not, you know, this sort of uh, great anger and rage, though it can be, can't it? You know, we see this with road rage and, and, uh, and so on. But it's also any uh, degree of negativity, you know, from... Irritation, annoyance, jealousy. Uh, there are many different forms of these negative emotions. And you see that in when the Buddha is giving uh, a teaching on the Upakalesa Sutta. This is the, uh, um, how do they call it? They, these are the more, these are defilements of the mind, defilements of the mind, Upakalesas. And there's so many, there's about 16 that he mentions. And this is where you see the emphasis in Buddhism. Um, on the, the, the mind. This is what the Buddha is t- uh, teaching us for, is to develop that mind, you know, to see this is where our experience is coming from. And, of course, the, the biggest... I've talked about greed, hatred, but delusion is the, is the biggest is a big one too because delusion makes greed and hatred possible. Delusion is what got those people into hospital, actually, because they all had a story, I'm sure, about what they were doing at that time, you know, that enabled the hatred or the negative qualities, maybe violence, to occur. So I was just going to mention, I'll do a, a quote from the Pali. I don't hardly ever do it on a Monday night, so, but everybody, I think uh, Sri Lankan people know this chant very well. It's a famous one. And, but it uh, puts it very well, actually. Mano pubangama dhamma mano seta mano maya manasache padu tena basativa karotiva tato nang anveti chakamva bahato padang. So. Do people know what that chant was? Manob Pubangama Dhamma. You hear it very often. I think monks in Sri Lanka are always giving talks about Manopubangama Dhamma. And the translation, for those of you who are not Pali, Pali uh, scholars, are there any Pali scholars here? <laughs> maybe online there are. We had the Pali class on Saturday here, so some of the students may be here. But the translation uh, that I like, there's always lots of variations in how people translate this. But it is, mind is the forerunner of all experience. Sometimes they say mental states, but I think all experience is fair enough, actually. Um, They are led by the mind. They are made by the mind. If with an impure mind one speaks or acts, suffering follows one like the cart's wheel follows the foot of the ox. And then, of course, the Buddha, as always, you know, he does the the negative and then he does the positive. So he, he restates that mind is the forerunner of all experience. They are led by 
by the mind, they are made by the mind. If with a pure mind one speaks or acts, happiness follows one, like one's never-departing shadow. So this is pointing to, you know, the importance of the mind. And the, the most important thing, I don't know if that stands out for you in that, is that the Buddha is making a distinction between the mind and the experience in the mind, and how the mind experiences the world, the mental states that come up in the mind. And this is a very, very important distinction because it means that, uh, that they're not the same. The mind is separate from these uh, experiences that we have, these mental states that come up, whether it be negative or positive mental states. And because of that, we can actually change these mental states, or we can create the causes and conditions for change, where there is no, you know, we can't uh, will, you know, I won't have any anger. You can try it, <laughs> try and give it a go. I won't have any anger. That won't work. It won't usually work. I want to be happy. <laughs> I want to be happy. That won't work either. But if we cause, we put in place or develop those things that bring up happiness, that reduce anger, then uh, that little by little will make a change in the mind and, and then will create new patterns in the mind, new habits in the mind and replace some of the negative ones with these uh, ones that bring happiness, that reduce the negative qualities. And so it's, um, this is a very important thing that we see with the mind and it's, it means that we have that potential for change. It's not fixed. There isn't destiny. Um, yeah, uh, that applies. We're not always going to be like whatever we are at the present moment, whether that be a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe we'll get better, maybe we'll get worse. And if we, if the mind is not in such a good condition, maybe it can improve uh, and hopefully not get worse. But there's a nice story that I... Uh, um, I like, which uh, highlights uh, something to do. Well, I can't can't tell you the the, uh, the bottom line yet. <laughs> It'll ruin the story. But it's a nice story that highlights uh, the importance of the mind. And this is a story about the man who had four wives. It's actually not from the Buddha. I think it's a commentary. And it's a lovely story. And he he had uh, these four wives, and the first wife was um, somewhat of a homebody. And um, she was, you know, she was always there in the background and uh, he didn't pay that much attention. He was the, was the first wife he married. So, um, you know, she was in the background and doing her thing and being around all the time. And then he, he married a, a much younger woman and she was very beautiful. And uh, he um, devoted a lot of his time to this uh, very beautiful young wife, you know, buying her uh, jewelry and clothes and all this sort of thing. And he had another wife who was great at looking after the home and uh, she managed the, uh, the, uh, all the property and the wealth of, that he had. Um, and she was really good at that. And he really liked her too. And uh, he also gave a lot of attention to her because she was so practical and so uh, such a good manager. And his uh, fourth wife, his fourth wife now, is she was very good socially, you know, and could relate to people, the family, the relatives and friends and other people that the husband had business, say business associates. She was really good uh, with them. 
And uh, so he really liked her very much because when he was with her, he stood out, you know, in the crowd. And he was, was very uh, uh, pleased, you know, how she came across. And so he had these four wives, the one that was beautiful, I sometimes called supermodel, the one that was a homemaker or the manager, and the other one who was a networker or a communicator. <laughs> very good. And fun to be around because she was very entertaining as well, obviously. And the other one was the homebody. And I wonder if you can work out what these uh, four different wives... And what happened? What happened? He was about... He got sick. He got sick. And uh, he was about to die. And so he thought, oh, I'm, I'm afraid to go on my own to uh, beyond death or, you know, die and then when I go on to my afterlife, I'd like to take one of my wives with me. And so, of course, the first wife he thought of was the supermodel. So he said to her, darling, will you come with me when I die? And she said to him straight, it was very direct, she said, no way, I won't go one foot from your body when it dies. And he was, he was a bit destroyed by this. He thought, my goodness, after all I've given to her, and this is, what sort of loyalty is this? And then the second one, uh, the uh, homemaker or the manager, the one that was very good with managing the house, the, the funds, the finances and everything, he said to her, will you come with me? Probably thought this would be good for the next life. <laughs> She'd be great, very handy. And she said, no way. I'll go as far as the gate and no further. And he thought, wow, this is, you know, how disappointing after all the attention I've given, after all the, all the uh, money and uh, affection I've given to her. And then the third one, the networker or communicator, he said to her, darling, will you come with me? It'll be great. I won't be lonely with you around. I'll be in good company. And she said, no way, I'll go as far as the cremation ground, as far as the cremation ground, no further, not a step further. So he was really, really upset. He thought, my goodness, no loyalty, you know, and they, they don't really care for me. So he asked the fourth wife, and not thinking, um, you know, well, he thought she may come. And so he asked the fourth wife, and the fourth wife said, no problem. I'll come with you anywhere you go. And he was really amazed. He thought, and then he felt very guilty because he really neglected her. And the other three, they weren't at all loyal or, you know, grateful for his attention. And the point of this story is, who do you think the, the beautiful wife stands for? Oh, I thought most of you would have heard this story. The body, it is, yeah. So she was beautiful. But it's the attention we give to the body, you know, and how much of our attention we lavish onto it. And one of my teachers, Ayakima, said, you know, we have a home for the body, but do we have a home for the mind? You know, the home's all set up for the body. We have cushions here, we have toilets, we have, you know, kitchens, we have beds, we have all this sort of thing. And, of course, the five senses, too. That's one of the main things that we have a body for. And she said, but what about the home for the mind? But this comes later, too. And who do you think the homemaker or the manager represents? 
Yeah, that's right. It's wealth and possession. Ken's heard this one. It can also be, um, in terms of the eight worldly dhammas, we call them, it can be gain and loss. There's wanting to gain all the time. And the body can be interpreted as pleasure and pain, as an, a worldly phenomena. And who do you think the networker and the communicator um, represents? This is quite an important one, actually. Hmm? Yep, friends and family. You've heard it before. Yes, friends and family, indeed. And it's friends and family. And it can also be interpreted as um, fame and obscurity. This is a worldly condition, you know, that uh, we seek fame, we, uh, we, we seek a place, a status in society, a reputation, and uh, want to avoid obscurity. But it also can be praise and blame, perhaps. It's all those sorts of um, things that are social, you know, uh, con connected to status. And the homebody, who do you think she was? I've given it away already, I think. She said she'd go with him anywhere. The mind, yeah, it's the mind. Sometimes they say karma. Ajahn Brahm says karma because there are very there are lots of different versions of this this story, interpretations, and ways of telling it. The way I'm telling it is from a Sri Lankan monk does it. I heard Venerable Kiribat Goda Yanananda does it similar to this. The way I've done it. So it's the mind, and this is the one that he neglected, and we all do. We tend to. You know, you, you see, for, for most of us too, we're looking after the body quite well. We'll go to the gym, you know, we'll get our hair cut and we'll, we'll do all manner of things, get nice clothes and all these sorts of things. But then, you know, what do we do for the mind? Fortunately, you've got a good answer. <laughs> you can say, we're here to meditate. So this is actually the reason we meditate, is to develop the mind, isn't it? Is to actually put... Uh, give the mind, take the mind to the uh, gym, or as Ajahn Brahm often called, he used to call, I don't hear him say it much these days, he said the monastery, his monastery, this is in Perth, Bodhnyana, he said is a beauty parlour. People go, really? <laughs> really? And he said it's a beauty parlour for the mind. And that's, that is what uh, the Buddha's path is aiming at, to make our minds beautiful, to develop our minds so that um, they are something we can take with us or if we really understand the mind, really understand the body, then we need not go from one life to the next. That's what the Buddha obviously aims for. But... Um, also, it means the experience we have of this life is so much more pleasant, so much more enjoyable, and so much more meaningful for us and for others as well. So the mind is really what the Buddha is mainly concerned with, though we do talk about it's a complete path, so it's more there is uh, different ways of training the mind too. So, and the Buddha often talked about a bhavana. And in Sri Lanka, we tend to, what do we call bhavana? Bhavanawa. Meditation, usually. But it, in the Buddha's, in the Pali language, in the Buddha's terminology, it's development or cultivation of the mind. 
So this is a bit more than just meditation. This is an important way of developing the mind. But we develop the mind throughout the day. We have the mind with us all the time. And the most important development of the mind from the Buddha's perspective is to see whether the mind is negative or not. If it's negative, then to let go of that, to avoid those negative states if possible to begin with, and to develop positive states of mind and to maintain them. And of course, when we maintain them, that helps us actually avoid negative states of mind. So this is really what the Buddha is aiming at. This is not only uh, you know, when we're at a Buddha center, this is when we're at home, when we're at work, when we're at school, wherever we find ourselves, because we have our mind with us. And so we look after the mind, we cultivate the mind uh, by letting go of these negative states of mind, not encouraging them, not in getting involved in them, acknowledging them and then choosing not to say what we might say, choosing not to do what we could do. Uh, as one of um, my favourite sayings from Bhante Gunaratana is, don't let your anger tell you what to do. And it's true of all the defilements, our greed or our delusion. Don't let it tell us what to do so that we get some freedom. So, let's see. Ah, yes, maybe. Just, yes. So the Buddha... And in that line, in that vein, the Buddha says, uh, there's a nice saying from the Buddha that uh, is good to mention. He says, monks, I do not see even one other thing that when undeveloped, uncultivated, brings such suffering as the mind. The mind, when undeveloped and uncultivated, brings suffering. And then, of course, he does the opposite. Monks, I do not even see, I do not see even one other thing that when developed and cultivated, Bring such happiness as the mind. The mind, when developed and cultivated, brings happiness. And the interesting thing with that is that oftentimes, you, you know, he talks about uh, that uh, when a mind is undeveloped and uncultivated, but in some sense, even if we are not developing it in a positive way, sometimes people are developing it in a negative way. You know what I mean? They, they are repeating negative habits, you know, like, for instance, getting angry. If they repeat it again and again, it gets stronger, it becomes automatic, and uh, it grows, and it becomes what they're developing. So even if we haven't got the notion of developing positive qualities, which the Buddha is talking about, if we don't have this idea, we may think we're not developing negative things, but we're actually growing these negative habits in our minds and in our speech and actions. So this is something that's it's really uh, it's a, a little sad because people don't see that what they're developing in their minds is actually due to repetition. It's due to repeating causes and, and conditions that give rise to negative states of mind. Um, and they don't see that and therefore strengthen a lots of these negative states of mind, whether it be jealousy, whether it be anger, um, or a lot of desire, sexual desire, whatever sort of desire. When we repeat things again and again, they get much stronger. And the question then remains, how do we develop the mind? And of course, tonight it's 
Meditation. <laughs> Through meditation. But that's not the only aspect. That's why we're meditating. To develop the mind. To develop the conditions for happiness in the mind. But uh, the, the Buddha, of course, you know, the whole of the Buddha's teaching is, is aimed at developing the mind, developing those qualities in us. So we have... Giving, dana, is a very important part of the Buddha's teaching. And that develops the mind in abandoning or letting go of stinginess, thinking only of ourselves, very self-centered, um, and giving this happiness, this happiness boost to the mind. Because often when we give, we feel very happy. And it, it gives us a sense of um, doing something good, something worthwhile. Uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful quality that helps develop the mind. And one of the highest reasons for giving, the Buddha said, is quite interesting. He gave about, there's a couple of teachings he gave in the numerical discourse, and he gives about eight different reasons in each. And, and some of them are really, <laughs> the negative ones are really are quite amazing. One can give out of anger, the Buddha said. <laughs> give out of anger. And probably people have experienced that, well, I'll take this, then, <laughs> you know, or so. And it depends on what you give the person, too. Maybe it's something they you know, that's very uh, insulting or whatever. But one of the highest reasons for giving, he says, is because it makes the mind, it adorns the mind, it makes the mind beautiful. We're not expecting anything in return, but it just brings happiness to the mind and this joy to the mind. So that's, And the reason for wanting to cultivate that is because not only is it pleasant, but it's good for the meditation as, as well. It's a very good base. And also when we develop the ethical behavior, that is also, you have to cultivate or develop the mind. Because without mindfulness, without awareness, we can't really look out for our actions of body, speech and mind. So this is a very important way that uh, um, we can abandon some of the, the negative qualities in the mind through our speech and our actions. This is where it's all coming from, isn't it? Coming from the mind. So however the, whatever quality the mind has, that will come out in our speech and actions. So this is also aimed at developing the mind. And I mentioned, of course, that uh, the bhavana, this is the cultivation of the mind, this is a very important one, um, and that meditation is, the, is one of the very important aspects of that because we're reconditioning the mind. When we sit, when we walk, we're developing qualities in the mind and by repetition they get stronger like as I was mentioning anything we repeat positively or negatively will get stronger so if we're developing more mindfulness in in the meditation we will tend to have more mindfulness in the day and it's like last time I did a we had listening meditation and I noticed I wonder if people noticed here that after that I was very aware of sound very aware of sound. It's quite interesting, actually. I, I, I could notice the mind going to the sounds. So it was quite quite interesting. So meditation is very important. And the, the monks, the Buddha had a nice, this is a nice saying about uh, why we develop meditation. And he says, and he talks about the uh, dual aspects of the experience. Two things, O monks, that's quite nice, O monks, to partake of true knowledge. What two? Serenity and insight. This is calm and insight. When serenity is developed, what benefit does one experience? That's pretty relevant. The mind is developed. 
And then he says, when the mind is developed, what benefit does one experience? All lust is abandoned. This is all the wanting aspects of the mind. We have that uh, word uh, craving we often use, but this is wanting, you know, wanting things and wanting to get rid of things too, actually. But this is more particularly wanting things. And then he says, what when insight is developed, what benefit does one experience? Wisdom is developed. When, when wisdom is developed, what benefit does one experience? All ignorance is abandoned. So this is like delusion. And then he says, a mind defiled by lust is not liberated. It's not free. And wisdom defiled by ignorance is not developed. Thus monks... Through the fading away of lust, there is liberation of the mind. And through the fading away of ignorance, there's liberation by wisdom. And this is what we're aiming to liberate, is the mind. <laughs> so we come back to the mind as a forerunner. That's what we're aiming. Because this is where we experience dukkha. You know, of course, uh, you know, we say dukkha is unsatisfactoriness. And it can have many forms. There is the physical um, dukkha that we experience. This is, you know, pain in the body, sicknesses and all those things. But it is really the mental aspect that the Buddha is particularly focused on because even when the body is sick um, or, you know, there's quite a serious illness, it's the mind that can get very upset and can get a lot of suffering, a lot of, a lot of um, negative ex reactions. Fear can come up and all these experiences of why me and so on. So the the mental aspect is what the Buddha is looking towards. And the last thing, the last way we develop the mind, we cultivate the mind, and this will finish actually, is through wisdom. And this is very important, understanding, because it changes everything uh, when we understand things correctly um, as they are. We actually, we have this, we have this saying in Buddhism uh, that the Buddha uses quite a lot, seeing things as they actually are. So this is what we aim to do. And the way we, we, we achieve that, the way we can see things as they actually are, is when the mind is pure, when these negative qualities in the mind, whether it be greed, hatred and delusion, all the, all the sub-branches of those qualities, when they are gone temporarily, and reduced in our meditation, then we can see things as they actually are. And this is, particularly the Buddha is talking about right view. If we talk about right view, you know, right view, if for those who are not, uh, 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 don't, are not aware of it, is uh, the Buddha said the very important things, giving, parents, karma, um, rebirth, and the fact that there are enlightened beings that have directly experienced reality as it is. And of course, you know, the other aspects of wisdom that we grow on the path. These things we come to, we don't have to, we believe in them, we can investigate. Because some people don't believe in karma and rebirth, for instance. But the Buddha would encourage people to look into it and to investigate it. And of course it was his experience. These things he knew from his experience. But that's not our experience, so we have to investigate them. And he said these are very important areas, and as, as is the Four Noble Truths, as is the three characteristics of impermanence, 
dukkha and uh, sorry, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. These are all part of wisdom. So this this is uh, the aspects of wisdom that we grow that inform our practice. And this is why we meditate to understand these things clearly, and you know through our practice to reduce those negative uh, qualities of the mind, so we can see clearly, so we can clean our glasses. <laughs> see very very clearly. The other aspect of of, of uh, wisdom is right intention, and this is so important for meditation that we are meditating not to get. We're not not meditating to get. We don't need to add anything more, but we need to let go of a lot. <laughs> There's uh, many things we can do without, especially the negative qualities. And this is what uh, is an important attitude. We say right intention or right attitude is this and it's very important in meditation because if we meditate with a with a bucket list as they call it <laughs> we're going to be very disappointed and maybe frustrated because the mind doesn't work that way it doesn't uh, do as we wish um, it can develop that quality once the mind has come together samadhi is developed then it can be um, it's a different story then but we to get there we cannot do that by demanding, expecting. Expectation is a wonderful way to be disappointed <laughs> and to be frustrated, but we find that out. And the other right intentions that the Buddha uh, mentions is non-ill will. So this is like loving kindness, being uh, kind to ourselves and to others, being patient with ourselves. <laughs> this is the essence we need in meditation a lot, <laughs> patience. And all the other positive qualities that are like that, but also non avihinsa uh, sankapa, and this is sort of non-harming. So this is having compassion for ourselves and other beings as well. So not hurting ourselves and other beings. So I'd like to. That's the introduction, and I was going to do a loving kindness meditation because last week. I had a boys school come and I thought, well, what's useful? <laughs> what sort of meditation would be useful? And I thought what would be good would be um, loving kindness because I, I've, you know, over in more recent times I've been concerned, as many parents would be, I'm not a parent, that uh, young people, uh, one of the second causes of death, major causes of death, is suicide. And, and really, I mean, I feel this This is why I feel that loving kindness is essential because if we're on good terms with ourselves, if we're kind to ourselves, if we can accept ourselves, we're less likely to go there. Though, you know, conditions can be difficult, we can be there for ourselves. And so this is why I taught it for these boys uh, last last week. And there's another group of them coming this Wednesday too. So it's loving kindness is very effective for reducing the negativity in the mind towards ourselves, towards others, and it can heal a lot of emotional hurts because we're giving ourselves that love, that, uh, that kindness, that acceptance, which often we're looking for from others. They may not give, <laughs> but we can give it to ourselves. So I know one teacher says, you know, if you want to receive love, you may not, if you want to get love, you may not get it. But if you want to give love, even if it's to yourself, who can stop you? 
And that's a lovely, lovely saying, actually. And the, the very good point with loving-kindness meditation is it's good for meditation because it overcomes the hindrances uh, to meditation in a big way, particularly the, um, the negative ones of irritation or, or criticizing oneself, fault-finding, those ones. But all the other ones too, because when we have that feeling of loving-kindness, that's the point, it's such a pleasant experience, you know, that uh, we can stay with it and it can become the focus for the mind. The mind doesn't want to go anywhere else when it's enjoying it, uh, the present moment as it is. So it's also a very pleasant experience. So it's very useful for that. So this evening I was going to um, emphasize the aspect of using loving-kindness in terms of being one's own best friend. Because I thought for these boys, that's probably something they could relate to. <laughs> you know, I was thinking being a best mate is probably what they think about. So it could be very, uh, could reach them that way. So the, and also combining that with a sense of giving, loving-kindness is all about giving, you know, giving to ourselves and giving to others. When we say radiating loving-kindness or spreading loving-kindness, it's giving, you know, this uh, wish of well-being, friendliness, not only to ourselves but to others. So this is uh, um, something that's very useful. I like the image of gift, giving a gift for just bringing up happiness in the mind. And uh, so this is uh, the loving-kindness uh, meditation, the preparation for it. Ah, right, right. So now maybe we can just stretch our legs for a moment and then we can start. Ooh. You took cold over there? Cold over if you here. move, if you want to move, because it doesn't feel cold over here. Yeah. It's just, it's just, uh, That's good. See, having a body? <laughs> One monk said, have body, will trouble. <laughs> That's true.
So we can, and the meditation for, will be for about uh, 45 minutes, and then after that we can have a section about uh, comments or questions if people have. So we can first of all uh, experience how the body is and find a comfortable position for sitting, noticing how the feet are on the floor or on the mat and the legs, position of them. Closing our eyes to get in contact with how the body is and how we can best position the body or allow the body to balance itself. And giving attention to the hips, as I mentioned, just seeing if they're in a good position, comfortable position. And the back are reasonably straight, but not rigid. And giving attention to the shoulders, moving them to make them comfortable and let go of any tension strains from the day and ways we've been holding the body while at work or wherever we've found we are have been. And paying attention to the neck and the head. They feel balanced over the shoulders, the shoulders feel balanced over the rest of the body and the hips too. Allowing the body to find the best position, comfortable position, balanced position, stable position for the meditation. And we can bring to mind to have the intention for this meditation to give a gift of being a best friend or a best mate to ourselves and to other beings. And in order to develop that attention, intention, we can just think of the qualities of a best friend. Thinking about the qualities of the best friend, we know such as they're friendly, we enjoy being with them, we feel quite safe with them, relaxed, easy to be with. They're sort of warm, accept, accepting. And we feel open, we don't feel guarded. And we can be our best friends, generous usually, and, and understanding. They know how we feel, we know how they feel. And we can get in touch with the feelings that comes up when we focus on the qualities of a best friend. Feeling of warmth, expansiveness, well-being, safety.
getting in contact with that feeling of being a best friend. And we can bring this feeling of being a best friend, give it as a gift to our bodies so we can relax the whole body from the top of the head to the tips of the toes, soothing it, healing it, any sore areas, painful areas, with this feeling of being a best friend, this warmth, relaxation, ease, acceptance of how our bodies are now, starting at the top of the head and soothing, relaxing, top of the head, the back of the head and the sides of the head, giving them the head a mental massage and moving our attention down the forehead, allowing the forehead to relax, any of the lines we develop in the forehead to relax, soothing the forehead, and then moving down the face to the cheeks, around the eyes, allowing them to really relax, and then moving the attention down to the mouth and the chin. Soothing, relaxing, massaging those areas. And we can bring to mind the neck, all around the neck, and move our attention down the neck, giving this kind, warm, attention of being a best friend to our bodies. Bringing to mind the right shoulder, starting at the neck and moving along the right shoulder with this warm, kind, gentle, massaging mind. And we bring to mind the right arm, starting at the top of the right arm and slowly moving our attention down the right arm, all around the right arm, down to the elbow, all around the elbow, being aware of the feelings in the elbow, the arm, 
relaxing and soothing. The left right arm to the elbow and moving the attention down the lower right arm. Soothing and relaxing as we go. And down to the right wrist, right hand, and right to the fingertips. Soothing with this kind, friendly attention. Relaxing the whole of the right arm. Now we bring to mind the left shoulder starting at the neck and move our attention slowly along the left shoulder, relaxing it and soothing it with this kind, warm attention, friendly attention, relaxing, soothing as we go. Now we bring to mind the left arm, starting at the top of the left arm and moving our attention slowly down the left arm, relaxing and soothing as we go with this warm, kind, friendly attention. Relaxing the whole of the left arm, soothing the whole of the left arm. And now bringing to mind the back starting below the shoulders and moving our attention down the back. Soothing, relaxing, mentally massaging the back. From below the shoulders right down to the buttocks, slowly
relaxing the whole of the back. And now we bring our attention to the front of the body and move our attention slowly down the front of the body, relaxing area after area, soothing it, giving it this friendly attention, warm, kind attention. Relaxing, soothing the whole of the front of the body. And now we can bring to mind the right leg, starting at the top of the right leg and moving our attention all around and down the leg. Moving down to the tips of the toes, the feet and the tips of the toes. But starting first the top of the right leg with this warm attention, relaxing attention. Relaxing the whole of the right leg, from the top of the leg to the tips of the toes, relaxed, soothed. And now bringing to mind the left leg, starting at the top of the leg, and we can move our attention slowly down the left leg all around, taking it right down to the tips of the toes. Soothing the whole of the left leg.
from the top of the leg right down to the tips of the toes. Now we can be aware of the whole body sitting here, relaxed, at ease and comfortable. And we can bring to mind those qualities of a best friend again to bring up that feeling of the best of being a best friend to our bodies, to ourselves. Whatever difficulties we have in our lives, whatever problems, being there for ourselves, being a support, being someone who understands, someone that is kind. being our own best friend. and giving this gift of being a best friend to the present moment, however we're experiencing it. The sounds, the feelings in the body, the breathing, the temperature of the air, whatever we're experiencing, with this real friendliness, acceptance, being giving the gift of being our own best friend, being a best friend to the present moment and letting go of the past and the future, only to define ourselves we are free and safe with a best friend.
and when we're aware of it, we can give this uh, gift of the feeling of being a best friend to the breath coming in and the breath going out. Being this feeling of being a best friend to the breath coming in and going out.
and if we find the feeling of being a best friend reduces, we can just remember the qualities of a best friend to refresh that feeling. And we can share this feeling of being a best friend to everyone here in the hall, giving this gift of acceptance, friendliness, safety to all beings here, everyone here in this hall, this warmth, feeling of friendliness, of being a best friend. And we can expand that feeling to outside this building, this hall, to the area surrounding it. Giving this gift of being, the feeling of being the best friend of all the beings around here. Human beings, animals, insects. Giving this gift of friendliness, safety acceptance
and expanding it further and further, this gift of the feeling of being a best friend to all the beings in Melbourne. Human beings, animals, insects, all beings. And expanding it further to cover the whole of Victoria. Especially for those beings affected by fire, the animals, the insects, the people that have been affected by the, by the bushfires. And expanding that feeling further and further to cover the whole of Australia. And to cover the whole world, and particularly those beings with the coronavirus experiencing suffering of sickness, illness, the fear of illness, giving them this gift of being, the feeling of being their best friend. And bringing our attention back to ourselves slowly, slowly, with this feeling of being our own best friend. And having the aspiration or the wish that we may develop this feeling of being a best friend to ourselves and all those we meet, just to be there for ourselves be a support, to forgive ourselves, to accept ourselves, and to have this quality of being a best friend in our speech and our actions as well, giving them as a gift to other people, to other beings. we can anchor this feeling of being our own best friend in our hearts as a support and something we can turn to at any time.
And now we can reflect on the meditation. How do we feel now? Is it different from when we began the meditation? We can ask ourselves, was I able to get in touch with the feeling of being a best friend to myself and to others? And we can ask, did I feel more friendly or kind or safe and relaxed? We can ask ourselves, how did I feel when I shared or gave this gift of being a best friend to others? Did it feel different than from when I was giving it to myself, ourselves? And we can ask ourselves, what caused these feelings that I experienced to arise? What was the cause? What was the condition for it? What triggered this feeling of being one's own best friend? Did I notice, or did we notice, the feeling of being a best friend change? Did it arise and get stronger or then get weaker and pass away? What did we notice in terms of the change or this emotional state, this feeling of being our own best friend?
And we can ask ourselves, who or what experienced this feeling of being a best friend? Did I make it happen? Or did it arise from causes and conditions? And now we can slowly come out of the meditation and open the eyes slowly and to move the body to make ourselves more comfortable. Are there uh, any comments, questions, or complaints? Is it too cold? <laughs> if you're under the under the air conditioner, it usually is too cold. But if you're further away, it's not too cold. But yeah. So, I think any. No, no comments, questions. It's a very good um, uh, meditation, loving kindness, and whatever approach works for one. This was one of the approaches that Ayakima used to teach. He was a famous uh, German Buddhist nun who uh, was, was a teacher who used to come here to the Buddhist Society of Victoria um, over the years. And I think the last time she came, probably 1990 three maybe and the last time she taught in Australia 1996 before she passed away in the next year 1997 but she was very good at uh, loving kindness because she needed it <laughs> she was quite a tough person tough person so that that quality of loving kindness she really needed to develop and she did she was very good at it her guided meditations yeah, are still available online and one of the one of them is being one's own best friend because we can bring up a feeling when we use some of these uh, ways of looking at our experience. Like we all know what a best friend is like and that's why I use it for the school, the school boys that, that came last week and will be coming on Wednesday. They know what a, a best friend is like and they know the feeling that they have for a best friend and then to give it to oneself uh, that feeling, that warmth, is easier uh, to arouse, that loving-kindness. Sometimes people will use the words of loving-kindness, and no problem with that, but if they use them often enough, they won't work. <laughs> they, run, they run out of juice. So you have to keep changing the words to something that's meaningful, that brings up the feeling. Because in the end, loving-kindness is a feeling, and it's a very pure feeling that doesn't discriminate between people 
you know, liking some and disliking others. And when it becomes a real power, there's nothing that a loving kindness um, will exclude. Nobody it will exclude, uh, whoever that person may be, your worst enemy, because that loving kindness just has is such a strong quality in the mind, such a pure quality in the mind, that it can overcome all sorts of negativity. And it's, an, it's um, sometimes people think of it as a, you know, like a bit like uh, soft toys, <laughs> cuddly and warm. And it can be. There's no problem with that. I don't know if you've seen Ajahn Brahm's retreats in uh, Western Australia. He has lots of these uh, cuddly toys, you know, and um, because teddy bears and so on, because uh, that is a useful, useful device that he uses. He finds people have a good feeling with the teddy bear or whatever it is that they feel. They have snails there. I don't know if anybody, <laughs> I don't know if anybody really gets a, a warm feeling from the snail. But anyway, there is a snail there and a few other other items. But the, I think the teddy bears work quite well. So all these things, whether it be seeing ourselves as our own best friend, teddy bears, they're only supports for developing the loving kindness. And we can we, we see what works. Ajahn Brahm also uses, as you know, the image of a kitten or an animal. It's very good, you know, some something that uh, uh, that we can easily arouse that feeling of kindness. In in his case, he's using more the sense of the vulnerability of the kitten and therefore the sort of mothering urge that we have, you know, protective urge we have for it. So whatever way we can find to arouse, this is very useful. And Ayakima had many, many different approaches. And, you know, like uh, uh, one was the flower garden in the heart, so you have all this image uh, mansion all these flowers in the heart and in the mind and they're all beautiful and smelling delightful and then you pick them and give them to yourself and then you give them to others um, that uh, you, you know other people as a gift of loving kindness and uh, she used to uh, have gratitude was another one bringing to mind somebody that one was very grateful for because then you have a very um, positive feeling of thanks to that person and that's very close to loving kindness actually and then you can radiate that feeling to yourself and then to others and these are all just means of developing that feeling of loving kindness she also used sun in the heart that was another one feeling like the sun warm filling you with light but it's the sun of loving kindness with warmth kindness banishing darkness banishing worries and she used the moon too. That was another one as well. But she had many. So if you were interested in different approaches, you can have a look on the internet. It should be easy to find Ayakema and the, the loving kindness meditations because that was something she was very, very good at. She was a very clear, very good teacher. But the most important thing is to develop the feeling. And we can all find different ways to do that. I know Ajahn Brahm uh, said... <laughs> He was talking at one retreat. He was talking about how to develop loving kindness, and this uh, he was talking about pets and babies and things like that. And um, this woman said to him, "They don't do anything for me. <laughs> These pets, the babies, and anything. But my plant, <laughs> she has a plant that she was looking after and nurturing, so she can give a lot of loving kindness to the plant. So she used that as a sort of support for the meditation. 
So this is any of these ways. They're just keys to developing loving kindness, getting in touch with that feeling and then being able to give it to oneself and to others. Often, you know, in the Visuddhimanga, they do it by categories of people, like we do it to ourselves, we do it to those that we are near and dear to, close family and friends, and then to neutral people and those that are negative, we have a negative relationship to, and then to all beings. But really the Buddha didn't teach like that. He often he really taught a more general radiating it in directions, actually. But I like uh, radiating it in expanding circles. It fits in with that. Because if we start to think of individuals, our loving kindness may get wrecked. <laughs> it may be derailed by stories we have about them. Even even close people, people who are close to there's always some issues or whatever that can derail that feeling. But when we have it more generally, that, that idea of developing the loving kindness and spreading it to all beings without identifying them, then it can be uh, much stronger and much purer, actually. So it's a, it's a very, I find, a useful way to develop it. So, but experiment and see what works for, for you. And that's Ayakima's test. The right method is the one that works for, for us and brings up that feeling of loving kindness, brings up that feeling of peace, um, of a positive energy in the mind, and which can bring wisdom as well. And at the end of the meditation, I was emphasizing the more wisdom aspects to look at our experience, because this is what is, can bring insight for us um, is when we look at our experience and understand what we've experienced. So we can see, you know, for instance, as pointing towards impermanence in, in the feeling of loving kindness. It's not the same all the way through the meditation. It will, get, uh, it, it will have its strengths and then it will fade away and then it come back. And this is good to observe because we're observing the mental states changing. And this is part of a very important thing to see in uh, uh, in the mind, in the body and in the mind because this is seeing impermanence and one day we can see it very deeply. So that's uh, a part of it. And also seeing that things come from causes and conditions is very, very important too. Not from I or me. We think sometimes people you know, want to be the driver of their meditation, me in control, and that won't, won't lead to uh, meditation taking off. It often leads to more tension <laughs> and more disappointments <laughs> because we can't, we find we can't derive it where we want to, you know, to the deep states of, of peace and, and uh, joy and to the deep states of insight, deep insights. So that's the other aspect we're always looking at in, in terms of insight, looking at change, looking at the fact that things uh, arise from causes and conditions, the things ne do not permanently satisfy us. You know, they, whatever happiness we have in the mind will change and that there's no permanent self in here that's running the show like we often think and therefore, you know, often get disappointed. We think, if we're running the show, how come the show is not going the way I want? And this is, uh, this is where loving-kindness is very useful because it can accept things as they are, accept ourselves as we are. Not, not 
doesn't mean we cannot change. That's not the case. But at this particular moment, we are like we are now. The next moment can be different, can be enlightened. So I'd like to finish there. And for those who would like to uh, pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, you're welcome. And next Monday, I think we'll be here. And on Sunday, there will be a talk by Venerable Chi Kuang Sunian.